Hello, hello. So today's episode has a very psychological spin to it, since I studied it in uni, and it's all about classical conditioning, specifically how all of us, whether we're conscious of it or not, doesn't matter. We're all conditioned to view an A as "Wow, you're smart," and an F as "Wow, you're you're dumb. You you might as well not try." Side note: I obviously do not think that I. Really, really dislike the grading system. No surprise, though, if you've watched any or listened to any of the other episodes. I'm ready to redo. But the main point of this episode is asking: Is it possible to reverse this conditioning effect to stop students from seeing an F and feeling bad about themselves? And if so, how can we reverse it? And there's two specific. Practical ways on how to do it, which I reveal in this episode. So, without further ado, let's jump into it. Hi everyone, welcome back. So, before we jump into the incredibly, incredibly overlooked topic of reverse conditioning, so not classical conditioning or what we have the idea of classical conditioning, but the opposite of that, and how that can literally change the classroom. We first need to go back to February 1920, where some very interesting results from a study done in John Hopkins University in the U.S. came out and was published, and really changed how we view psychology today. So John B. Watson and his graduate student Rosalie Rayner, they were testing something in particular, and they were basing their study off of classical conditioning, the concept of classical conditioning, which we will explain in a second, and their hypothesis, which is just a scientific way of saying their prediction, was that you can literally induce a phobia or a fear in a child. And so, what once was just a neutral thing that the child wasn't afraid of can now be changed into something that they are afraid of. So, before we jump into that study, which I think if you've done any sort of psychology unit or interest in the topic, you'll probably know that as Little Albert or the Little Albert experiment. But before we jump into that, first we need to talk about classical conditioning. So, classical conditioning 101. To put simply, that was termed by Ivan Pavlov. Pavlov, you may know the name of or heard of it, and he's the first documented person to have researched about classical conditioning. But as we all know, maybe, probably, to be honest, someone has already thought about it and studied it and researched it before his time, but was just never credited. But for the means of this episode, we will say that Ivan Pavlov was the first person to really talk about classical conditioning. And so his study was a very, very famous study, which involved a dog and a bell. And the idea was, we can condition this dog to salivate when there's a bell, instead of initially salivating where there's food. So what he did was he said, "Okay, well, well, let's place this dog here, <laughs> just in this lab, and let's present it with food, and it will naturally start salivating." Then. Every time we ring a bell, in very close proximity in time with giving the dog the food, the dog will start to condition itself and start to associate the food with the bell, to the point where you can ring the bell and it'll just start salivating even if there's no food, and that's what we term classical conditioning. 
And so that's essentially where we have an otherwise normal stimulus, like a bell. It shouldn't make you salivate just naturally. So that's a neutral stimulus. When we're paired it up, when we're paired it up, when we've paired it up with a stimulus like food, which should provoke a reaction in the body, and we pair those two up, the bell should therefore elicit a human behavior response like salivation in response to this neutral stimulus. So other examples of this, just real life examples, what you would see in real life, let's use the topic of food. So if you're at a restaurant and you see a waiter coming, you've already ordered, you've waited, say, 15 minutes, you see a waiter approach and you get that elated feel, like you just like, (gasps) and you (laughs) just forget about the person in front of you, just fixate on that waiter as they're coming and then they walk past you and you're like, oh, deflated. But you get that dopamine rush or you get that uh, uh, sensation in your belly or whatever it is. Naturally, a waiter wouldn't do that. Like, say, say if you were in a tram and a waiter who's just finished his shift or her shift comes onto the tram, you won't feel that feeling in your stomach or that anticipation for that waiter. That's not what you're conditioned, you know, That that's not the real physiological response to a neutral waiter. But in the context of a restaurant, you've already conditioned yourself to associate that waiter with your food, with that waiter as being the thing that will bring the food to you. And another example, which is, I guess, the opposite in meaning is, say if you're sick, you've just, you have a really bad cold, and this happens especially when you're younger, uh, you have a really bad cold and your parents force you to eat something because you've lost your appetite. So generally, and I found when I've talked to people, it's generally mushy food or very bland food, whether it's soup, whether it's, uh, you know, just something like that. And they've had a really, really negative experience with it. So they've eaten it and because they're sick, they'll vomit it up. And now they've associated the vomiting and the negative experience with that with the food itself. And so people who are in their 20s or 50s have food that they don't like because they've conditioned themselves, well, not conditioned themselves, but had these experiences which have conditioned them to associate negative things with an otherwise neutral asparagus. You know, like what did what did asparagus do to you? Nothing, <laughs> but the vomit did. And then another example is failing a test and seeing an F or a really low grade or below a 50 on a piece of paper. We will go into that in a second. You'll see how that really relates back to the classroom, back to the education system. But for now, let's go back to Little Albert, the Little Albert experiment. Back to that, they selected, out of many babies, they selected this one that was nine months old, termed Albert. That's not his actual name, but that's the name of this study. And they chose him because he wasn't afraid of, say, things like furry animals, like rats, rabbits, um, monkeys. They actually tested that in the study to see, you know, what, what his reactions were to them. And he found them fun. He found them cute. He was just playing around and he was nine months old. He's so baby. <laughs> anyway, so they wanted to see, can we condition baby Albert to fear these furry animals by hitting this hammer on steel, which is naturally going to elicit 
a fear response because it's so loud, it's so jarring. The baby will naturally hate that. Can they associate that clanking noise with furry animals and therefore induce a fear in baby Albert towards furry animals? And in the study, yes, John B. Watson did prove that you can induce a phobia in poor little baby Albert towards furry animals. So what they did in the experiment was they put a pet rat, one of those lab rats, in with baby Albert. He was fine with it, but as he started getting closer, touching it, they would hit the bell. Oh, no, not the, no, oh my God, now I'm getting conditioned. Uh, they would hit the steel with the hammer. And so baby Albert over time started to fear this. And then that associated or dissociated to things like furry rabbits and monkeys and masks <laughs> as well. Like if you see the filming, he, he literally wears a mask and tries to scare baby Albert, which of course he's successful at, but also why? <laughs> that would scare anyone, even if they're not scared of furry animals who have done this experiment. It's just ugh, unethical. Anyway, so going back to education now and linking these concepts with education and with the classroom. First, let's just imagine the alphabet on a piece of paper or on the screen. I'll put it on the screen so you don't have to imagine. So A to Z, 26 letters. Sure. You just look at it and go, okay, why are you showing me this? But now let's say we cut it into A to F and get rid of the letters, the other letters. You can start to see what I'm trying to get at here. So A to F, already that has some meaning to it, potentially. What happens now if we change the font to red font? Also, we need to get rid of E because I <laughs> I realize that E isn't even a grade, or at least not in the education, Australian education system, which is pretty sad because what, what did E do? It's just so discriminated. <laughs> Anyway, let's take a moment to feel for E right now. So let's get rid of that E. And now let's put the spaces in A, B, C, D, F. How on earth do these words have so much power and so much weight about how we feel about ourselves? We've conditioned ourselves so much to believe that an A is a good thing and an F is a bad thing even though it's just a neutral stimulus, a letter. Someone who doesn't grade, you know, someone whose education system doesn't use letters or use numbers, whether it's like zero to a hundred percent, if they don't use that, they would just look at it and say, okay, if it's an F, 35%, they'll look at it and go, well, okay, what are these symbols? What does this mean? Because for them, it doesn't mean anything. But for us, we've been conditioned to think that it means that we're either a failure, that we're either a success, that, um, that we making mistakes is a bad thing, that just so many misconceptions, all because we've been conditioned from a system that isn't even too old. The system first started and brief, I guess now it's become history 101, first started in Prussia, which I think the 18 or 1900, no, 1800s, 19th century where it became a new thing because it was the start of the industrial age. They needed more factory workers. This was a great, great system to be able to mark and keep track of the, all these students, and they introduced the grading scale. Before, it wasn't a thing. It was agriculture. Who needed a letter to determine 
anything about their expertise as a farmer. So, but if you want to know more about that, I did a little more history 101 in episode two. So way back. So we don't want to condition students to fear making mistakes or to view a letter or a number as something that defines them. And some educators, like I mentioned in the Art of Possibility episode, I think two episodes back, Ben Zander, who's an educator and also conductor, said that he just wanted to scrap that grading scale because all the students were just working towards an A, but he wanted actually for them to define their own. He couldn't care less about, you know, the other grading scale shenanigans, just wanted them to define their own A. In other places, in other alternative sections, they don't even have grading scales. They have feedback. Like Prisma, which uh, will be will be a future episode, they have just, you know, really abolished grades. They've included really, really personalized feedback, which they think is more helpful. So already there are alternatives. But back to the real point of this episode, which is how can we reverse this conditioning? How can we reverse this idea of associating failure with an F or thinking that mistakes are bad and getting a lower grade is a bad thing? And this is something that was never answered in Little Albert's experiment, and which is why it's so unethical, is because they induced a phobia. They successfully did that, but they never actually undid that. (laughs) So, of course, people are just like, how could you traumatize a kid and not have uh, reverse it? And so when he was giving, when John B. Watson was giving a lecture, Mary, Mary Cover-Jones, who is also a researcher, latched onto that idea, and she actually managed to undo a phobia in a child. And this child was called Peter. Peter was two years old. And she successfully, successfully undid his fear of furry animals. This is completely different to Albert, by the way, but it's fascinating how this kid completely feared furry animals, furry things, furry whatever, furry, (laughs) feared all of that stuff. And she specifically chose him because of that. Like he had such a specific fear. And in the end, she did two things. And we will go into those two things. She did two things which actually undid his phobia. First was a thing called direct conditioning. I like to call it reverse conditioning. But direct conditioning where she now is classical conditioning the kid to associate a nice thing with the furry rabbit that usually creates such bad experiences. So in this case, she paired his favorite food, favorite candy with that rabbit, would place the rabbit really far away. And he would first, of course, be scared, but she would give him food to chew on, food that he really liked, food that he was eating. And he started to associate that as not being so bad because he had something that made him feel happy. And the other, the other method that she chose was to have Peter interact with other kids. I think it was three other kids who weren't afraid of furry rabbits or furry things and were having him in his environment to sort of have that exposure to the fact that it's not as scary as he thinks. And this idea of social community is ridiculously, ridiculously important, as we'll find out. So... What happened was Peter would have daily play sessions with these kids. And I think it was, it was in the ninth session. 
So he was getting better. He was actually getting better. And in the ninth session, the rabbit made him cry. What happened was a child ran over and just said, oh, rabbit, and, you know, I think petted it or whatever. And Peter just observed that and noticed that it wasn't so bad. I don't know if he necessarily touched it, but apparently he moved closer to the rabbit. Already an improvement. And by session 21, um, there were 45 sessions overall, but in session 21, while Peter was eating, he said, I don't want it. He saw the rabbit and he started crying. He said, I don't want it. I don't want to touch it. And his fear was still very much there. So another kid just came in, started patting the rabbit. And over time, and in that session as well, Peter actually took the rabbit for himself and started petting it petting it briefly, petting it, and not showing signs of the fear that he initially had. And this is such, such an important concept and such an important just idea, again, of social community and having other people around you who have a behavior that is really helpful to then help you learn that behavior. So how can we desensitize a student from the grade or how can we desensitize them from failure and mistakes and attributing that as a bad thing? So first of all, let's go back to direct conditioning. So say if someone gets a D or an F or whatever, we don't make that a big deal. Instead, we emphasize the importance of feedback. We emphasize, well, how are you improving based on this, uh, on the feedback I gave you? Let's focus on the improvements. And this also comes down to the school and what they celebrate. So if they're always celebrating the achievements of students, say if it's uh, an A plus or a gold medal or something like that, and we just only show the highlight reel and we never show the students who are trying, who have improved drastically. So say if they were at F level, but they got to C, that is a really big jump and if the culture was to, you know, celebrate the fact that people can improve, that people have improved, that would be a change in the culture and therefore also changing how we condition ourselves to view things like grades. And this really goes back, I guess, to always, always. Again, I always say I should get sponsored, but I really should get sponsored. Carol Dweck's Mindset um book. So saying that we should pro- focus on the process, focus on the idea of getting and getting there and improving and working with our mistakes to desensitize us to the idea that mistakes and failure is bad. So if someone were to fail, to focus on the positive and go, okay, what did you learn from this? Okay, we're not going to blame you and say that and criticize you, but how can you learn from this uh, thing that you got wrong here? And in terms of the second point of community and surrounding people with people who aren't afraid of failure or grades in this situation. It's really hard. It's so unlikely that we're going to get a student to be surrounded by other students who view failure as a good thing, right? But at least in changing the culture, we need to start from the top down. We need to start from the, well, I don't like to say top down actually, because that implies that teachers are the top or principals are the top and students are the bottom. No, we need to work from outside in. So we need teachers, we need principals, we need staff to already embody those 
mindsets, those growth mindsets, to not shame a student when they get something wrong, to praise students when they try, to praise students when they make an educated guess, don't get it right and say, that's all right. You know what? You tried. Can we all see and like go to the class and say, can we see that so-and-so actually really tried and got to a um, conclusion that is valid? Trying to validate the student. So it's really important that we can see also that the teachers treat the teachers well, that the teachers treat the staff well, that the board, that the principal teach, teach, treat everyone well. Because if a student, say, for example, he overhears a teacher saying, oh, I can't believe so-and-so teacher has made this huge error on the test and um, expects me to clean it all up and blah, blah, blah. That implies just as secondhand witnessing, it implies to the student that making a mistake is bad because other people will complain about it or other people will find it inconvenient and so-and-so and, you know, like it extends to if a teacher were to badmouth another teacher for not teaching a class well enough or um, th- just be conflict within the teaching space as well, that will, again, teach the student that, no, your thoughts are valid. Your thoughts about failure and mistakes are valid because look what the other teachers are saying. So are the teachers blaming each other? Are the teachers pointing out and calling out mistakes and not focusing on the learning aspect of it? Are they trying to fix the problem instead of blame? Are they trying to solve it? Are they trying to work together? All of that is so important, again, because what we see is what we'll mimic. And what Peter did in that experiment was see the other kids treating that, you know, rabbit really neutrally, not fearing it, not thinking it was scary. And he started to adopt that mannerism as well. And I I said it before as well, like to just treat a grade as a grade, generally to abide by government standards and by curriculum, we have to, just have to by default, abide by this grading scale. But if the school can minimize that minimize the emphasis on grades and emphasize instead feedback and to say that this is our constructive feedback. It's going to be different for everyone and this is going to be really what you need to work on. And we're going to be looking more about not whether you make a mistake because that's, a you know, that's how you learn. But we want to see how you've improved. We want to see what you've taken from our feedback and what you've used to improve yourself focusing and redirecting from failure or from grades to a process rather than an outcome. So that's a lot. Oh my God, how long have we been talking? I might need to actually split this into two episodes. Mm. We will see. We will see. Anyway, I will see you next week and I hope you enjoy this episode. Bye. Bye.